If you would please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. As we are going to look at a little section this morning of the Sermon on the Mount, which in my opinion is very timely given the days at hand and things that are going on throughout our land among the churches throughout our land. Matthew chapter 7, if you'd please stand for the reading of God's word. And uh, we're going to start our reading in verse 15 of the seventh chapter, read down through verse um, uh, 23. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? But then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. ask that we may go to prayer and pray for me. As I desperately need God's grace and pray for yourselves that you desperately need God's grace as well. Let's pray. <clears throat> Almighty God, our Father, it is one brief 30 or 35 minutes a week that most of us sit under the proclamation of the Bible. And as Charles pointed out this morning from the little catechism, proclamation of the scriptures is the primary means of grace. So I ask you, O God, to be with me as I preach this text, to give me the unction of your spirit, give me clarity of thought, give me, O God, a sense of your presence, to be with the congregation, pray that they would not have their minds drifting here and there, pray that none would fall asleep, pray that your spirit would work and apply this to us, and we ask you, our God, to change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why are you here this morning? Why are you here this morning? Is it that it's just what you do? Is it that your parents brought you and that's why you're here? Or is it for the fact that you love Christ and desire to learn more of him? And to grow in grace. Religiosity is and can be a dangerous characteristic. What is religiosity? Well, it is the quality of state of being quite religious. Nothing wrong with that. But listen to what James says in his little epistle in verse 26 of the first chapter. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his own tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 
So just because someone is very religious does not mean they're converted. The confession talks about those who are living under the illusion of being converted when they are not. It also talks about the fact that Christians can lose their assurance, but they are still converted. So uh, this morning we want to think about what uh, James says and what the Lord Jesus says here in this text. James and further commenting on this says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So true religion is always accompanied by action. True religion is always accompanied by action. And this morning in the text, we're going to consider the Lord Jesus talks about people that are very religious people. They think they're on the king's highway to heaven, but they are, in fact, on the road to perdition. And it is because of where they are placing their trust in their life as Jesus addresses these people in this text. And the problem that he addresses here is not simply particular to the people of the Lord's day. It is true of us today and many that are in churches throughout our own country that think they are believers, but in fact they are not. And in many churches, the gospel is simply not preached. And that is cause for alarm. We are reminded of Philippians 2:12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Make your calling and election sure. What are you basing your confidence on this morning? What happens to see this as we go through these verses this morning? Because false assurance comes when one trusts in his works to save him. False assurance comes with one looks upon his works to bring him salvation. We must examine ourselves and see to it that we are resting in Christ and Christ alone for our confidence in our salvation. And of necessity, of necessity, works will accompany that, but works by no means in any way contribute to your security in heaven. So three things this morning, and I'm not going to look at that clock again. Uh, self-deception in Christianity uh, results in one relies on works for their salvation. A self-deception in Christianity indicates one is separated from God. I'm going to slow it down for Martha. And self-deception in Christianity is fixed when one honestly is dedicated to Christ, resting in the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing then, self-deception in Christianity results when one relies on works or puts confidence in their works for their salvation. These people in this text claim faith. Those that are listening to Jesus, those he's referring to here, and it's really referring to the last day, those he's referring to here claim faith. Uh, they are not atheists. They are not those who believe that we came about by chance. Nothing comes about by chance, much less the creation. They are not those who think that we are simply the product of some quirk of an explosion. Also, he's not referring to those who were ignorant of God's existence, not the agnostic. 
who simply says, well, I don't know. I'll remind them the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. God's evidence of self-existence is seen in the creation. And so Paul says there's no excuse for non-belief. There's no excuse for it at all. So he's not referring to the atheist here in this text. He's not referring to those who are agnostics. Uh, These people who he's talking about here have made a profession of faith in Christ. They claim to know Jesus savingly. And think about this. The Lord is summing up this magnificent sermon uh, that he's preaching on the side of uh, this mountain. In verses um, 15 through 20, he refers to false prophets. Those who are inwardly ravenous wolves and they are in sheep's clothing, he tells us here. So he goes from false prophets in verses 15 through 20 to false professors in 21 and 23. Those who claim to know Jesus, but they don't. From unsound teachers to unsound professors, unsound hearers. They know who Jesus is. They know his claims. They know the things that he has done. And notice what uh, Jesus says, how they address him. Lord, Lord, they say to him at the end of this. Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? It is a term of affection, a term of intimacy. And yet Christ nonetheless lets it be known that they do not know him intimately. They do not know him personally. These people would likely be members in good standing of an evangelical church. But they're not believers. They're not those who are really connected to Christ by faith. And understand this is very likely that they're orthodox in their beliefs. There's nothing in these verses to indicate they do not have orthodoxy in their faith. There's nothing to say that they are not straight with theology. There's nothing to indicate they're heretics. So their orthodoxy would be straight. They know who Jesus is. They know his works. They know he's God in the flesh. They know that he claims divinity. They know that he is the God man. They know that he kept the law perfectly. And they know that he went to the cross of Calvary and rose from the dead. And he is the only way to have eternal life. They are versed in the Bible. They stand before Jesus on that day with great confidence as they make the claims about the things that they did. The things that they believe. Lord, Lord. Weren't we faithful to you throughout all of our lives? And he tells them, and it could be that they have a very convincing conversion experience. You know, the kind of experience that wows people. You know, they share their conversion experience. You know, you've been to places that do that, right? Everybody talks about how they came to faith, and this person has a wow. That's just, you know, wows everybody. It's such a magnificent tale. Kind of like the Apostle Paul could say on the road to Damascus, what happened to me, but wow. Well, these people may indeed have a very elaborate and a very detailed and a very impressive profession of faith, talking about their conversion experience. Another thing is they are very active in grandiose religious activity. Now, what I'm trying to do as I go through this is bring us from the first century into this century. Because what's true of those people who stood before Jesus at that time he's referring to is true today. It's very true today. Notice their claims. Didn't we prophesy or preach in your name? We did that. Uh, we preached in your name. We preached about Jesus. 
Uh, we concerned people to be converted as they listened to the preaching, uh, which was exceptional. And Lord, we prophesied in your name and we did a good job of it as well. They also claimed to cast out demons in your name. We put demons to flight. They were afraid of us. And then they did mighty works, Jesus says here in the text, in your name. This is their claiming to do miracles. They're claiming to have done things that are just absolutely amazing. My granny used to say to me, as my daddy's mother, whenever I would start saying things I was going to do, and she had her doubts, she would say, you're going to do wonders and blunders. Well, these people did wonders that weren't real, and they were therefore blunders. There is no substance to the things that they are doing so far as pleasing God. It's interesting. Jesus does not dispute their claims, but that's not the heart of the matter. And that is not the heart of the matter at all. He does not dispute them or admit them. Because that's not his concern. As he brings this text to us for our teaching, for our instruction. That's not our concern. That's not his concern. The problem is this. These people had a misplaced confidence. And the relationship with God was not based upon what is truly saving faith but rather the things that they were doing. Notice how they put it. Didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do mighty works in your name? You should be grateful for us. You should be thankful for us. Because if it weren't for us, this work wouldn't have been done. And so they are fancying that they have done a great work for the Christ, but all the while... Their motives are wrong. And listen to this. Listen to this very carefully. Motives are important in the work that you do in the church. God cares about motives. He cares about your motive and things that you do. He cares about it. And so if our motives are entirely wrong, it's not pleasing to God. It's important to God. It's important to Christ. The motives behind what we do. You remember in uh, this earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, uh, when you give to the church, when you give your gift, don't let one hand know what the other is doing. In other words, don't announce it. When you pray, don't stand on the street corner. So to be seen by others that you're quite righteous, you're quite, quite holy, you're quite one who is so devoted to God. But he says, go into your closet. And he says, these people that are doing this to be seen by men, they have their reward and they have it in full. In other words, that's not pleasing to God. It's not pleasing to the Lord. And they wanted to be seen by men and get credit from men. Well, that's all they're going to get. That is all the reward they will have. Well, the second thing, self-deception in Christianity indicates one is separated from God. If you're basing, listen to this, if you're basing your assurance of heaven on anything other than Christ Jesus, you're not converted. Now, I'm not saying we can't be converted and slip into the sin of thinking that what we are doing somehow merits God's favor to let us into heaven. That somehow and in some way the works that we do open the doors of heaven a little bit wider for us. Well, that's not true. 
And those who are assuming, those who are thinking, as far as the people Christ is referring to here, they are looking to the things that they've done to get them and make them right with God. And so they are deceived, you see. And he tells these people the worst words you'll ever hear. I never knew you. He will say to them on that day, I never knew you. Four of the most horrific words anyone will ever say. And understand this. The day is going to come when you're going to stand before Christ. That day is coming. You may like to think it's not. You may like to think that uh, you can avoid it somehow. But you can't avoid it. The scriptures tell us that. And the scriptures are quite clear on that. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Well, he says, I never knew you. You who make these uh, grandiose claims of work that you've done on the, in the name of, uh, of, of, of in my name. Now, certainly we understand that he knew who they were. God knows all things. And nothing can be hidden from God. Uh, he would know their names. He was cognizant of them. Otherwise, he couldn't pronounce judgment on them, could he? If he didn't know anything about them. If he was uncertain of their life, he didn't have to say, well, let me go back and review my notes and see exactly what you did. And he knew them intimately. He knew them personally. But he does not know them savingly. Do you see the difference? He knew them intimately. He knows who they are. He does not know them savingly. They are not those who have experienced the grace of Christ in their life and that is demonstrated by their own refusal to be humble and confess their sin and their need for Christ. They're looking at what they've done and resting upon what they've done, and that gives them a great sense of confidence. But all the while... They are not doing God's work at all. I never knew you. Psalm 51, 16 and 15 says this, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. This is when David prays after coming under conviction of a sin with Bathsheba, of committing adultery, of having her husband murdered, and of covering it all up. Psalm 51 is one of the penitent psalms when David confesses his sin to God. Listen to what he says here. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. It is only the individual who has come to a sense of his sin and the fact that God is offended by your sin and the fact that Christ has done all that needs to be done to take care of the guilt of that sin that are saved. They can possibly be saved. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. God has no concern for perfunctory worship. And so how do you prepare to come here on each Lord's Day? What do you do in preparation to come to worship on each Lord's Day? Do you have a fight with your wife, an argument with somebody in the house? Do you bring up something that happened ages ago and you just can't let it go because you're so upset about it? Do you talk about the football game of yesterday all the way here? Or do you get on your knees and pray, oh, God, bless that word to my heart and mind this day. Bless it that I may grow in grace. 
be with the pastor, O Lord, as he preaches. Oh, how my heart longs to be more like Christ. And how I confess my own sin and my lawlessness. That I find myself putting confidence in my own works. I find myself being arrogant. I find myself having little interest in the things of Christ. The Lord bless me this morning, I pray with grace. That's how we prepare to come to worship. That's what we do when we're here. Before we come, we pray and we plead. Lord, make my mind right. Forgive me for anger that I have. May it be put away from me. Help me to repent of it. Forgive me, O God, for grumbling and complaining. Lord, help me to repent of that. So God cares about our attitudes, the way that we approach Him. Micah 6, 6 through 8. I'm going to read that to you. Um, so what he says is, what does the Lord require is the heading here. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Here's the answer. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what pleases the Lord. To be a man whose faith displays itself in righteous acts and righteous works. That are done not in a sense of earning his favor, but out of a sense of love and commitment to Christ. As the judge, he here appears in this text, he condemns these people. Depart from me. There is a hell. It's occupied at this moment. Make no mistake about that. There is a hell. Jesus believed there was a hell. He knows more than Jesus about spiritual things. I don't think you do. And when he says here in the text, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, there's only one of two places they can possibly be going. Christ has excluded them from heaven. That means they're going to hell. That means they will have no place with the company of the redeemed. Christ will not allow them in his heaven. Why? He tells us here in the text, you workers of lawlessness. These people were religious. And there is no indication at all that these people were um, vile individuals as far as morality is concerned. What they were was insincere in their labors for Christ. Their hearts were far from him. And therefore, if you were not in Christ, no matter how moral you may be, you are still a worker of wickedness. No matter how moral, how carefully you try to obey God's law, if you're outside of Christ and dependent upon your works to bring you peace with God, you practice lawlessness, as the Lord Jesus Christ says here. So the direction of these people was not one of repentance, 
was not one of humility, was not one of gratitude for God's grace displayed to them in Christ. The bent of these people's lives was arrogance and pride in themselves for the religious actions that they did. They were proud of themselves. And here it is. The direction of their life is rebellion against God day after day after day. We cannot come in God's presence without coming first to Christ and embracing Christ as your only hope for salvation. We cannot come before God, offering before Him our works and saying to Him, You should be pleased with me because of what I do. No, sir. No, sir. Oh, Lord, be gracious to me. I don't deserve your kindness. I don't deserve your grace. Because I rebel against you and I sin against you each day. Even after my conversion, I still break your law. And at times I break it willingly and I don't care. And that's not the one who would stand before Christ and say, I did this in your name. I did that in your name. You should be happy. You should be grateful. You should let me into heaven. That's not at all what Jesus says here. Many will stand before me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't I teach Sunday school? Didn't I preach? Uh, Wasn't I faithful in opening the doors of the church? Wasn't I faithful in taking care of the needy? If that is your hope for this world, in this world, for the next one, you're lost. They have what I think we would call a demon's faith, which James talks about in James chapter 2 and verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. He doesn't say the demons are converted. And don't waste your time praying for Satan's conversion. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. We know that. So the demon's faith gives intellectual assent to the facts, but no sincere love for Christ. Salvation and obedience to God. Listen to this. Salvation and obedience to God are inseparable. Salvation and obedience to God are inseparable. John fourteen fifteen. Jesus said this, if you love me. You will keep my commandments. That will be the desire of the heart, not perfectly, because we still have sin within us. But we grieve when we sin against God. At least we should. And our desire is to please him. Luke six forty six. he says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord? Why do you address me as your God and not do what I say? The kingdom of heaven is not entered into because of obedience. The kingdom of heaven is not ours because of obedience. But this is also true. The one who is in the kingdom of heaven, there's no one in the kingdom of heaven who is not obedient. Do you hear that? No one is in heaven because of their obedience. No one. We are in heaven, we are in God's kingdom because of Christ and his work and our faith in him. But also, there is no one in the kingdom of heaven who is not obedient. 
And the very first step of obedience is faith in Christ. Coming to the Lord Jesus Christ as he has offered to us in the gospel. That's the first step. That's the first act of true obedience. We are told to believe. It's a command. So that's the first step of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These people are filled with lawlessness. They are self-righteous. They are not repentant. Their hope is in themselves and not in our great God who loves us and gave himself for us. Very quickly then, self-deception of conversion in Christianity is fixed when one honestly examines himself and being dedicated to Jesus. That's how we come to a certain sense of our conversion. There must be a mindset of a life that is firmly set and abiding in Christ. That hymn, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That is true conversion. The object of our faith, we must be orthodox. The object of our faith is Christ, who is God in the flesh, who gave himself on the cross of Calvary. So orthodox in our understanding and also in the work that the Lord Jesus Christ did. And after that happens, you see, there must be active obedience, practical obedience. Where you say no to things that God disapproves of, and though you fail, you say, I'm sorry, I repent of it, and you start over again. But failure is no reason to give up and say, well, I'm not going to try anymore. That indicates that you don't really love Christ. Or that you don't have a sense of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We need to be like David. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Lord, try me. Test me and see if there's any waywardness in me. Test me and see if there's any lawlessness in me. And if there is, oh God, show it to me and grant me the grace of turning away from it. That's where we need to be, where David is in Psalm 139. Test me, oh God. Try me. Reveal to me any secret faults, any sin that is there. And I am not aware of that. Please let me see. Well, what would it be like today if the Lord examines you and the Lord tests you? Is there abiding lawlessness for which you're not sorry? For which you don't struggle against it because you like it? Perhaps it's arrogance. Perhaps it's pride. Perhaps it's thinking you're better than others. Perhaps it's worldliness. And just lust. Perhaps it's loving the world way too much. Perhaps it's being in love with your money. Whatever the case may happen to be. If the Lord examined your life today, what would he reveal to you that is there? Gossip, holding grudges, speaking against a brother or sister in Christ. What would it be? And if it's revealed to you, would you in fact and indeed turn away from it? It's foolish to take things for granted. I take, for example, the individual who is confident they're going to get a promotion at work. They're right for it. They're in the right position for it. They deserve it. They're expecting it. But somehow and in some way, a relative of the boss gets the job. And you don't. And you're kind of disappointed. Or again, take the young 
man who is assured that the girl of his dreams is sure to marry him. And so he uh, sits back and he takes advantage of her. He has her wait on him hand and foot. He doesn't really express really deep affection for her. He takes it for granted. And lo and behold, there is another young man in her life who doesn't do that. He's kind to her. He's gracious to her. He's loving toward her. And all of a sudden, word comes out that she's marrying this other fellow. Can't take things for granted. We cannot take our conversion, our salvation for granted either. You can't sit back and say to yourself, I did this, I did that, therefore, I know I'm going to heaven because of what I did. Oh, no, you're not. You're not going to heaven because of what you did. If you're going to heaven, it's because of what Jesus did, not because of what you did or could do. Listen to this. It was up to us to do certain things to get to heaven. None of us would be there. None of us would. But it is because of Christ that we have the assurance that we are going to be in glory. So we must be sincere in our service and connection and commitment to Jesus. We do not take things for granted. We do not simply give God lip service. If you have no desire, listen to this. If you have no desire to be obedient and to please God, you're not converted. But the wonderful news is, no matter how poor we live our lives, there's always the open arms of Jesus who tells us to come unto him and be saved. Remember what they said in Acts? What must we do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So put no confidence in what you do and things that you do. You do that out of a sense of commitment. Take no pride in what you do. You do that out of a sense of love for Jesus. In doing that, we rest entirely upon him. It's, it's, it's time to quit. I see people going, what? Mr. Mr. Joshua said, I didn't mind people doing this. It's when they started doing this. <laughs> Let's pray.